Uncover from CBC Podcasts brings you award-winning investigations year-round. Infiltrate an international network of neo-Nazi extremists. He ranted with racist language. Discover the true story of the CIA's attempts at mind control. Their objective was to wipe my memory. Or dig into a crypto king's mysterious death and a quarter billion dollars missing. There are deep oddities in this case. With episodes weekly, Uncover is your home for in-depth reporting and exceptional storytelling. Find Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In 2015, three London teenagers, including 15-year-old Shamima Begum, all went missing. The police started an international search. Soon after, it was discovered that they'd boarded a plane in the UK. The girls were caught on camera at airport security, leaving for Istanbul, according to authorities. And then, video of them meeting what police describe as a people smuggler to take them into Syria. They wanted a new life in what was then known as the Islamic State. What Shamima didn't know at the time is that she and her friends would be separated. Both of them are now believed to be dead. She also didn't know that her name and face would be recognized all over the world, that she'd be seen by many as a poster girl for ISIS, the militant Islamist group that had captured a huge swath of land in Iraq and Syria and had been carrying out brutal terrorist attacks in many other countries, including the UK. Shamima was catapulted back into the media when she was found in a prison camp in Syria in 2019. That's where she learned that the British government had stripped her of her citizenship on national security grounds. I don't know what to say. I'm not that shocked, but I'm a bit shocked. I don't know why my case is any different to other people. Or is it just because I was on the news four years ago? It's a decision she's been fighting ever since. I think a lot of people should have like sympathy towards me for everything I've been through. You know, when I, 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 I didn't know what I was getting into when I left, and I just was hoping that maybe, for me, for the sake of me and my child, they, they let me come back. Because okay. I can't live in this camp forever. It's not really possible. This week, the Special Immigration Appeals Tribunal in the UK ruled to uphold the government's decision, meaning that Shamima is not getting her citizenship back anytime soon, if ever. Joshua Baker is a documentary filmmaker and journalist who's been covering the story for a long time. He interviewed Shamima Begum for his podcast, I'm Not a Monster, The Shamima Begum Story. And he's also made a one-hour special about her for the BBC. We're going to talk about what he learned about Shamima Begum through his reporting, what the tribunal's ruling about her citizenship status might mean for who gets to be British and who doesn't, and what her story reveals about the plight of thousands of foreigners who are still stuck in Syria after traveling there to join ISIS. 
I'm Tamara Kendacker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Hi, Joshua. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I spent last night binging the podcast, and I have to say it's so gripping and so good. And I've been following the Shamima story for a long time, and it's so interesting to hear her side of things. Can we start with who Shamima Begum is, what's her background, and why did she want to travel to Syria and join ISIS? Yeah, I mean, let's go back to that. I mean, thank you, first of all. That's very kind of you. I really appreciate that. When you talk to Shamima Begum, it's quite interesting because she's kind of three people, if you will. She's the 15-year-old girl who left London prioritising taking Mintero chocolate with her to a war zone because she was naive and didn't really know what she was getting into. And then she's a teenager who's had her formative years inside a terrorist group. And with that comes quite a harsh logic and quite a single-mindedness sometimes, if you want. And then there's the woman who's been living in a detention camp for four years, who in essence has been reflecting upon the decisions that she made and trying to sort of come to understand her identity and what she is and isn't accountable for, if that makes sense. And in any given conversation with Shamima, you're navigating those three personalities. And so what did you learn about her backstory and sort of what motivated her to leave the UK in the first place? In essence, you know, Shamim Begum grew up in a conservative Muslim community in East London, a community that is a place where you find sort of an internal struggle for identity between uh, an older generation who believe in a more conservative traditional way of living, a younger generation who perhaps want to live more liberally or more freely and there's a clash there it's also a community where you know it sits in the shadow of london's financial district there's a lot of poverty there there's not a lot of opportunities it's juxtaposed with coffee shops that want to serve up oat milk cappuccino so there's a huge identity crisis going in there and shamima begum said she really struggled to know who she was or where she belonged during this period and it was at this time that isis sort of announced its caliphate if you will it's so-called caliphate And one of her friends, her best friend, a lady called Sharmina, um, was going through a loss of her mother. She started listening and consuming ISIS's propaganda. She was sort of the trailblazer, went to Syria first. And once there, she started messaging Shamima Begum and her friends, trying to lure her there, sending her the propaganda and trying to convince her that in essence to be, you know, a good Muslim, she had to come to Syria to fulfill this dream and to convince her that there was a utopia waiting for her. Yeah, the thing that I found kind of interesting is the the contradiction in growing up in a conservative community and wanting more freedom. She didn't want to be Bengali, but she also didn't feel like she was fitting into British society. Um, and it's interesting that she decided to go to the Islamic State, which is a notoriously oppressive place, as a way to get more freedom. So what was like the thought process in her mind? Like, why why would she do that. You're completely right, right? To to us, it makes no sense because we view ISIS as this, rightly, this oppressive, brutal cult that committed genocide. But what Shamima Begum would say is, look, I thought I was going to a utopia. I thought I was going to an ideal society. And she cites some of the propaganda that the group put out at that time, which does paint that image. And I think this is a really important point 
there have been studies that show only about 8 or 9% of ISIS's propaganda was that ultra-violent stuff that we are so familiar with. Most of it was sort of selling a dream or selling the idea of a society. Oh, my brothers, living in the West, I know how you feel when I used to live there. In the heart, you feel depressed. said, the cure for the depression is jihad The jihadis also and people who were consuming ISIS propaganda could uh, sort of tailor what they wanted to consume depending on what their beliefs were, what they wanted to see. But what's been pointed out to me is that in itself is not necessarily enough to make somebody travel to the so-called Islamic State. And the key factor is that there is this best friend living there feeding her the message, selling her the dream, pushing her to come, providing the contacts, and sort of driving that idea for her to come and join this utopia. So any criticism that emerges in the media, you know, the best friend can be like, well, no, it's not like that. The media are lying to you. Don't believe them. Believe me. I'm here. I can tell you it's great. It's just Western governments, you know, trying to make ISIS look bad because they hate Islam, you know. They were saying, like, anyone could just make a video and say they're ISIS, like killing someone. And at that time, I was young and naive, and I, I just believed them. And of course, the reality was something very different. Uh, ISIS at the time, around 2015, is carrying out terrorist attacks all over the world, carrying out a genocide in Syria and Iraq. But she's able to kind of ignore these things because she's listening to her best friend who's there on the ground. Totally, and feeding her an alternate narrative that she chooses to believe in. Now, the best friend provides her with a lot of the contacts to get there, but Shamima Begum, of her own volition, goes an extra mile. She seeks out extra people to help her. She researches words in Turkish that could be useful to her journey. So she does have agency in this decision. What do we know about her time uh, living under the ISIS regime? What did she get up to while she was there? So, you know, Shamima Begum lived inside the uh, so-called caliphate for, for the best part of four years. Now, very little is known about what her life there looked like. There have been a lot of accusations over the years. And we sort of travelled to Raqqa in episodes five and six to retrace and understand as much as we can about her life. And it's it's really interesting. And so Shamima's narrative is one that she was largely a housewife who didn't go out very much and stayed away from the sort of more extreme elements of the caliphate, if there is such a thing. Now, a lot of people find that very hard to believe. And there's some truth to what she's saying, but there are also some things that she's trying to avoid revealing. The truth being that we need to understand a woman's role in ISIS's society and primarily... Uh, it is to essentially support the husband and, in essence, breed the next generation of the caliphate, the caliphate cubs, as they called them, so the caliphate can continue and grow. So, you know, women inside the caliphate are very much under the rule of men. And so it's not unthinkable that she wouldn't have the freedom that, say, male counterparts or male jihadis that we have seen in the news commit atrocious acts have had there. But at the same time, you know, women were part of ISIS's religious police and have been uh, in the latter stages of the caliphate linked to fighting. So it's not impossible that she was involved in those things. What we've done is we've looked into what she's told us and we think it's, it's unlikely 
that she was engaged in fighting, but not impossible. So I get why a lot of people are skeptical of Shamima's story now, given how she was acting in those initial interviews in 2019. But you've interviewed her extensively and you really grill her on the podcast. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you believe her when she says she didn't know about the atrocities that ISIS was committing when she left? No, I think it would be impossible to uh, think that Shamima Begum didn't know about the atrocities. But I think the point there is that this is somebody, for me, for my money, that was probably indoctrinated and did genuinely believe in a utopia. And as she has put it to me, you know, she made excuses for them. It's like when you're in love, you make excuses. She was in love with the idea of going to ISIS. So I think both things can be true. She can uh, be aware of the atrocities and then also simultaneously still be in love with the idea of joining ISIS. Shamima was found in a Syrian refugee camp in 2019, and she was asking the British government to let her come home. And I remember at the time, she wasn't fully rejecting ISIS's ideology or their actions. And um, she was saying things like the Manchester attack was a retaliation for the attacks that were happening on ISIS territory. But to kill people like women and children, just like people, you know, like the women and children in Bagos that are being killed right now, unjustly by the bombings, because women and children are being killed back in the Islamic State right now. And it's kind of retaliation. Like, the, their justification was that it was retaliation, so I thought, okay, that is a, f- a fair justification. But more recently, as she's been fighting the government's decision to strip her citizenship, she's been claiming that she was trafficked into Syria. And we talked about how she was influenced by her friend and kind of brainwashed into joining ISIS. But can you tell me about why she claims she was trafficked and what is her argument for having her citizenship restored? So in essence, look, Shamima Begum emerges from the ashes of the ISIS caliphate in 2019. And at that point, she's found by the Times journalist Anthony Lloyd, and then a succession of media interviews ensue. In those interviews, she is essentially talking within the ideology of ISIS. And she says some pretty abhorrent things that make, rightly, a lot of people very angry. I don't regret it because it's changed me as a person. It's made me stronger, tougher, you know... I married my husband. I wouldn't have found someone like him back in the UK. I had my kids, you know. I did have a good time there. It's just that then things got harder and I couldn't take it anymore. Now, at that point, the British government takes a look at it and they say, actually, this woman is a threat to British society and for the greater good, we are going to remove her citizenship. And they do that. She's been in Syria ever since. Now, what her lawyers are now arguing is that when the British government made that decision, they, their sort of principal argument is that they failed to consider that Shamima Begum was a victim of trafficking for child sexual exploitation and that that should have been factored into the decision. Now, the British government would say to that, well, she can be both a victim and a threat and, and, and those things can both be true. And for the greater good, we removed her citizenship. You know, if you look at Shamima Begum's journey through... Turkey. Um, In essence, you know, she was largely dependent upon a highly established IS people smuggling network to move her there. 
this network had moved a lot of people, including children, into ISIS and also money as well. Um, and interestingly, at the heart of that network was a, na- a man called Mohammed Rashid. We obtained hundreds of pages of secretive material on him gathered by law enforcement, intelligence agencies, lawyers. And it revealed that this man was part of an intelligence operation for CSIS and that he would meet his contacts in Jordan and provide information. So in essence, Shamima Begum was moved to Syria through a highly organised ISIS people smuggling network with a man who was working for Canadian intelligence or providing information to Canadian intelligence. And a former Canadian intelligence officer has said to me that this could have been prevented, that it's an operation that's gone wrong. So I think there are questions that need to be asked about how Shamima Begum was able to make it there. That said... Before she left the UK, and it's a really important thing to remember, she did have agency in her decisions and she did take steps to leave the country. And we can't ignore that either in the the understanding of fairness. And the British government says regardless of whether or not she was trafficked, she could still pose a threat to the UK. But do they accept that she was trafficked or do they think of her as someone who joined ISIS eyes wide open? Do they think that she was like a committed ISIS volunteer? Yeah, I mean, they would say, look, exactly that. Shamim and Begum joined ISIS with her eyes open. That You know, her, their lawyers have said that. Um, you know, what they are in essence trying to assert is it doesn't really matter in their view because she can still be a threat. And what we're dealing with here is whether this person was a threat at the point the decision was made. And I think that's also another important distinction. We're not talking really about the Shamima Begum of today in a legal sense. At tw- in 2019, when she said what she said, was she a threat, yes or no? And so other people would say that that is almost a bit frustrating because it means we're not dealing with the situation now as it stands today. We're dealing with a historic decision at a historic point where there is probably additional context that needs to be considered. And so they say that she may pose a threat to the UK, but I've also read a lot of analysis from security experts who say that leaving all these foreign fighters in Syria is also a bad idea. So can you tell me about that aspect of this? Completely. So I've spoken to members who, you know, serving members of the intelligence community, the military, academics, you name it. And there tends to be a universal opinion in my experience, which is, We have a situation at the moment where there are thousands of people from as many as 56 nations in detention camps in Syria. These are sort of makeshift prisons, makeshift detention camps, and there is no long-term solution currently to dealing with them. Inside these camps are uh, women, but also children who were born within the so-called caliphate and are sort of growing up around this extremist ideology. And what people tend to say is, if you leave these people there... They escape, they regroup with ISIS, they pose a threat. So what you're doing, as as one sort of uh, uh, academic put it to me, is you're creating a tinderbox that at some point will ignite and all of us will get sucked back into dealing with that. So there is an argument that even a sort of conservative MP has made to me uh, in this country that the question we should be asking ourselves are, you know, where is where are we safest, not where Shamima Begum is safest. And he himself said that there is an argument that she should face British justice in this country and be held in a prison that is secure. The argument in favour of repatriating these people is that they were radicalised at home and therefore should face the legal systems in their own 
countries and those countries should pay for the cost of holding them. Is there any recognition by the public in the UK that Britain bears some responsibility for what happened here? I think there is in certain quarters and there isn't in others. You know, what I would say to you is I've sat with the sort of one of the commanders of the Kurdish forces who were in essence our boots on the ground in the fight against ISIS. These were people who fought alongside our special forces, you know, worked with the Americans, you know, the the international coalition. And they have said to me, as have many people who suffered under ISIS, that they feel it isn't fair that they are being left holding these people. These people came to their country, uh, one person said to me, gave their country a death sentence. And now they find themselves having to hold what has been described as a ball of fire. You know, that said, in this country, I think there is uh, a very popular opinion that at the end of the day, bringing these people home poses a threat to us and we have to think about what is best for us in this country. I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List a six-part investigative podcast. Available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. How has Shamima's story been received in the UK? It's been really interesting. So uh, I can't explain to you how big a story this is in the UK. Like, seemingly everyone has an opinion. Uh, What I would like to see is her to go back to Bangladesh to uh, and basically face a prison cell Actually, there. She's never been to Bangladesh. Yeah. Well, she's, uh, but the responsibility is ours, and we mm. cannot offload that on another country. I'm sorry, she is not my responsibility. There will be she lots of people who will think, hang on, she, she comes over here, she brings her child, taxpayers' money... I mean, it divides families, it's absurd. And in a way, that's because Shamima Begum has sort of become the iconocast for our anger at ISIS. She is the person that we think of when we talk about this. So with a story that has that level of sort of attention around it, we found we've had an awful lot of praise because regardless of whatever my personal opinion is, we try to be straight and stick to the facts and also fair to Shamima Begum. But with that has also come some criticism in particularly the right-wing press and I have received personally a a lot of threats because people are very concerned about letting this woman speak. And what does she think about the anger that people feel towards her? Shamima Begum would say that uh, she puts a lot of blame on the public anger towards her on the media the fact that she has featured so much in the media. I mean, look, so much has been said about Shamima Begum and until now so little is really known about what happened. Um, And she feels that in a way she can understand the public's anger towards her. She does get it, she would say, but she feels it's been sort of like exacerbated by the level of media coverage of her. So on Wednesday, Shamima lost her appeal to have her citizenship restored. Could you explain the rationale behind 
this decision. Now, as it stands, her appeal has been lost on all grounds. However, when you start to get into the detail of the ruling, which is about 76 pages, you start to see there are some interesting points that have been made. Now, the judge and the commission have said that there are probably grounds to say that Shamima Begum was indeed trafficked to Syria. They also raise questions about the police's handling and the authorities' handling of the situation before she left and whether it could have been stopped. The problem is that is beyond the scope of this commission. So what they're saying is the decision in 2019 is indeed lawful. However, there are potentially other parts of this case that need to be reviewed, but they can't mandate a review. So it's not perhaps as clear-cut as people would like to think. So she's going to stay where she is right now, but what's next for her? Does she have any other paths forward? Is there any other way that she could come back to the UK? So as I was leaving court, I passed by her lawyers and it was really interesting. And one of her legal team said to me, this is not over. And they clearly feel that they have grounds to either launch an appeal or that there is some other legal framework that they can explore to fight her case. As far as they're concerned, they feel like the judge was very troubled by the limitation of what he could rule on, and they feel that the fight is very much still alive. Is the UK unique in its resistance to repatriate people who left the country to join ISIS? The UK isn't unique. Um, A number of uh, nations have taken similar policies in the past, including Australia until very recently. However, what I would say is becoming uh, increasingly clear is that this policy is becoming less and less popular with other nations, including Australia, who I just previously mentioned, who have now taken some of their nationals back. And so America for a long time has been urging nations to take their citizens home. And increasingly, it looks like the British government will become isolated in this policy. They're not yet there yet, don't get me wrong, but that seems to be the trend politically at the moment. And can you tell me a bit about the political climate in the UK and how that's sort of factoring into the conversation around this? Like, I know in recent years, the UK has introduced some pretty controversial immigration policies. And yeah, the rhetoric around all of this has been really heated. So how does that contribute to the conversation around this case? So I think if you think about it like this, like Shamima Begum's story, in a way, is one of the most contemporary British stories. And what I mean by that is it touches upon every issue in our society that generates anger. Issues of migration, issues of British identity, issues of religion, issues of terror, issues of security. And as a consequence of that, you have this incredibly heated climate whenever you talk about anything in relation to her case, because it just touches upon all of these issues. And I think certainly at the time, at the moment when we are um, so staunchly anti-migration, um, it seems unlikely that there will be much favour for Shumima Begum's decision as a member of a terror group. This is obviously a really divisive story. And, you know, you mentioned that you've been getting 
a lot of hate for broadcasting Shamima's story, but you've taken so much time and care to like parse through what she's saying and put her side of the story out there. What do you hope that people will take away from this show? I think for us, we found ourselves in the position where we had this story, which was a unique thing. And what we're trying to do is, in essence, understand what really happened here, what the truth really is of what is arguably one of the biggest stories in British society and has an important, you know, global context in relation to what we do with people like Shamima Begum who are held in Syria and offer that story up in a way that is fair. And I also want to point out, it's interesting because there are times where I would say Shamima Begum is certainly concealing stuff from me and we address that. But she's also sometimes honest to a detriment. And she says things that I think, you know, she is being honest, but some people will find it very hard to have her admit to certain things. Now, again, it's for people to listen to that and take away what they want from Shamima Begum. Josh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta, and our sound designer is Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Locos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. And before I let you go, if you like this episode, please take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.